For though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. Instead, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We tear down arguments and every presumption set up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world's darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Greetings, you're listening to Cantus Firmus. This is Cody Cook, and my guest today is Andrew Kern, who's the author of The Myth of the Social Contract. Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Yourself? I'm doing all right. Um, would you mind telling um, the audience a little bit about your background and what brought you to write this book, The Myth of the Social Contract? Yeah, so I had been writing uh, quite a bit. Uh, well, this was years ago, maybe six to eight years ago, I was writing a lot and um, publishing a lot of articles on places like uh, like FEE, Foundation for Economic Education, and uh, some on Mises, the Mises Institute, and on antiwar.com, some others. And um, I noticed a lot of my, a lot of what I like to write about was uh, social contract theory. And uh, so I ended up with like four or five like articles that at least were related to that. And um, so eventually I, a couple of my friends are starting to kind of publish a book or their first book. And so I, I thought about it for myself. And then since I had been writing so much about that social contract theory, I thought that would be the easiest at least to start with. So then I, uh, yeah, I, I kind of, I did some editing and combined like about five of my articles and then wrote some more original content and you know, put it all together into a little book. And what I, what I like about the book, I was just saying this before we started, is that it's brief. It kind of goes through the information so in a very kind of a distilled format so you can deal with the, the questions and, and the objections. Uh, and and like, like I said like to you, like I hate writing books that are longer than they need to be. I, I like to read a book that tells me what I need to know so I can go on with my life. Uh, and, and this is a great, uh, concise book. Um, and so uh, somebody who's listening may know what the social contract is, may not know what the social contract is. Can you explain what the social contract is? When I hear contract, I think of uh, an agreement uh, that, that, that people make voluntarily, that they enter into. So when I sign a contract with my cell phone carrier, uh, I don't just get a phone in the mail that I didn't ask for, that I'm forced to use and pay for. Um, I, I sign an agreement. So is that is that what a social contract is? Um, yeah, well, in my writing, and specifically in this book, I define a so the social contract, at least for these purposes, is any argument or attempt to justify that the state or government has uh, legitimate or, or just authority. As in, you know, any argument where a person tries to explain that whatever the state is doing is legitimate, and it could just be, or even the most basic things the state does is legitimate, like just taxing and making laws in general. So that's that's what I'm talking about when I'm just talking about social contract. There are there are other definitions of it, but when you're talking about politics in particular, that is the definition you're using implicitly. Um, what else were you asking? Oh, that's okay. Well, so uh, as you were talking about it, you're saying it's it's a way of legitimizing the state. But there, there right. are other there are other ways you could try to do that. You could you could talk about like a divine appointment theory, or, or something. Like that. So social contract right, theory is a little different than those other theories. 
So, so, so yeah, in, well, what, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Okay. What was in, in what way is it different? What makes it distinct? Yeah, so there's a lot of versions. Even if you just stick to the political interpretation of social contract theory, like uh, appealing to God's authority is a version of that, right? Um, but the other versions would be like, like you're saying, if we all agreed amongst ourselves that we're going to um, do, do this, well, that's not... That doesn't have to do with politics per se. That is just saying, you know, we could all agree among ourselves that we're gonna do anything, you know, that we're all gonna wear shoes, okay? that That's not necessarily saying it had, politics has anything to do with it. Um, you know, it's only relates to politics if you say, we're all gonna agree we're gonna wear shoes and we're gonna make a law that you have to. That's when you're talking about politics. Otherwise, social contracts can refer to just norms of society or, you know, cult, the culture, our traditions, you know, in a sense, people kind of like agree to the norms of their society when they're living there, but not in the political sense of uh, agreement, you know, and they're not making an actual contract to agree or anything like that. So like uh, uh, how, how people uh, didn't spoil the new Spider-Man movie when it first came out. That's like a social contract. We all kind of agreed sure. that we weren't going to do that. Right. Sure, and so yeah, that's a good example. But but in in politics, it's it's as you're saying, it's something a little bit different. So can you explain what social contract theory is in in the political sphere? Yeah. So like I said, there's not even in the political sphere, there's not one theory. There are many, and especially when you're talking to laymen and not like actual philosophers, they have a whole variety of ways they think of why they think the government is legitimate, right? And I in my book, I try to tackle like the most common reasons people have and the most common arguments they put forth. So yeah, um, a one example would be people of what people say is, if you don't like it, leave. And the implicit argument behind that, if you were to extract it, make it easier to understand, is they're saying that, in effect, the government owns all the land within its borders, right? All the property, it owns that area. So they're saying it has a right to make the rules. And so if you don't like it, just leave. You know, they're comparing it to the house or someone's home and the rules they make in their house, right? Mm. If you don't like someone's, that someone doesn't want you smoking weed in their house, you know, just leave. Don't go to the house anymore. Um, but that's, and if when you explain all that, you see why that, that initial claim of if you don't like it, leave, doesn't make a lot of sense for governments because almost no one actually believes the government literally owns all the property and its territories, especially like libertarian or conservative conservative types, because we appreciate property rights. We appreciate that individuals are the legitimate owners of the property, and the government isn't. Yeah, it seems to almost go back to like the the, uh, the sort of monarchical system where the where the king owns all the land and he sort of grants it <laughs> at, at his uh, at his you know yeah, yeah. at his uh, well, and in uh, effect, that is what happens with governments, but. I don't think anyone thinks that's right. You know, they don't think the government is necessarily the owner, like a king would be. They think we are actually the owners. Yeah. If I have, so then um, the, the, the really the implicit thing, and if you don't like it, leave, is if you're here, you agree. Right? You, yeah. You agree. Yeah. To the, yeah. Okay. Sure. So, um, okay. So that, that I think helps a little bit uh, to kind of understand what this idea is. So this social contract the theory in, in a political sphere, as you said, there's different versions of it, but it's something like um, we all sort of, the government is legitimate because 
um, we all sort of agree that we're going to live under it. And so it's not something that's being forced on us. It's something that we, uh, we, we, we assent to, right? Just like when I go in your house, I'm, I agree to follow the rules of your house. It's not being forced on me. I, I don't have to go in your house. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's, there's this sort of implicit agreement that I'm entering uh, that I'm going to follow the rules of the house. Something like that, right? So, yeah. And there, in a very loose sense, you could say we agree to it. Um, but it's not nearly as straightforward as agreeing to be in someone's house. Okay, so as an example, imagine you live in a neighborhood that um, has a lot of crime. You know, there's just a lot of people in streets and in alleyways that mug people. Now, would we say that you consent to get mugged if you walk down a particular alley at night um, just because you live in the neighborhood? No, I don't think we would. I mean, that's right. In a sense, you're agreeing to live in the neighborhood, but you're not consenting to certain actions that take place in that neighborhood. And in the case of the social contract theory, you're not um, consenting necessarily to the government making rules or taxing you. Yeah, okay, fair enough. And, and, and then um, it seems that there, there's another issue, one issue that comes to my mind immediately is that um, the social contract theory may sound kind of reasonable in a society where the laws are somewhat reasonable, <laughs> but you wouldn't necessarily say that um, uh, you know, in uh, um, uh, in Rwanda, where the it was the Hutus who were slaughtering the Tutsis, the Tutsis uh, they agreed to be slaughtered because they lived in Rwanda, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, and I think that's a yeah exactly. But I think that's a good point that um, yeah, if the laws are are just and are generally really good, most people agree with them, then it becomes more of a consensual relationship. But I don't think, but I still. At the crux of it, I don't think it the, a state, even by just its definition of what a state is, I don't think it can it can always be, I don't think it can ever be 100% consensual. Because you ultimately you're born into it and it's forced on you whether you agree to it or not. Yeah, because it's just comparison to other things we consent in life, like especially complicated things, because having a government is the most complicated contract you could think of, right? And so you think of like, if you're just buying a house, the amount of paperwork you have to sign and all the legalities surrounding it is very significant. If, yeah. So where was our opportunity to agree to the thousands or hundreds of thousands of laws that the government creates? You know, we never actually were asked. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, to, to get a, to buy a house or get a cell phone contract, there's all these things you have to agree to because it's understood that if you don't agree to this, then it's not really valid. It's not really a valid agreement. It's not really a valid arrangement. Uh, but 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 none of us ever say, uh, yeah, I'm okay with the government putting me in a cage for for years of my life if I'm fine with marijuana. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. And then, then, but also in a sense, you like you don't nest like a, a criminal, a felon doesn't necessarily need to consent to be punished for crime, right? Or like a victim doesn't need the criminal's consent to defend himself. You know, yes. so there is that nuance that you have to keep in mind, but. For if you're talking about a state or government in particular, no one gave their actual consent for that organization to tax them and then go actively pursue criminals. So even when the state is doing the best they could do, like punishing real felons, um, it's still not doing it consensually in a sense because it, it didn't ask the population if that's what they want. It well, it didn't a sense. You know, there's voting, 
but it, it didn't explicitly ask each individual if they want to pay for that service, right? Or how much they want to pay for that service. Well, and I, I think that's where the, uh, the democracy argument comes in, right? Well, if the majority elects these congressmen or supports this ballot initiative, that's enough, that's sufficient. But once again, if the majority of the people in Rwanda are Hutus and they say it's okay to slaughter the Tutsis, then it doesn't really matter um, what right. the Tutsis think, right? Yeah, if the majority does something terrible, it's still unjust. But also, like, uh, the majority, the, well, I would say democracy is the probably the most consensual type of government, but it's still not very consensual. Because, and it's more consensual than having a king, right? Because at least the people do have some say what laws they, they want, even yep. though I think it's very minimal. But, but they're still not, you know, it's still not like any private organization. A private organization can't come into a town. Walmart can't come in and say, we're going to take a vote. And if the majority say they only want to buy Walmart products, then that's what's going to happen. And then they're going to force you to pay for Walmart products just because the majority voted so. And that we would think that's ridiculous in a private setting, but we apply completely different standards if it's the government. So so one of the issues in social contract theory is that uh, even in a democracy, which is one of the more free and consensual models in theory, um, the, 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 what am I trying to say? the consent of the minority is ignored. Exactly. That's, yeah. I mean, that's like the definition of democracy. It's that a min the minority uh, views don't matter. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. Or I could right. say even their, their consent doesn't matter, I think would be more precise. Yeah, and, and essentially the, the state is going to do what it wants without their consent. Um, and right. it, that mean to them, it could even mean to them, right? So um, if you look at, um, you know, kind of pre-America, pre-civil rights laws, um, where you have the minority, a minority of African Americans uh, who are being sort of put upon by the majority. Um, well, that's that's just the system working the way it's supposed to. That's the social contract theory. That's democracy. That's all good and fine. Um, yeah. But, but, I, but I, yeah. But we recognize, I think, that there's something wrong with that thinking, right? Right. And you know, you could say that. Well, the the black people didn't get to vote. Slaves didn't get to vote. So that's why it wasn't consensual. I think it's pretty absurd. I mean, they still would have been the minority and they would have been outvoted, right? So slavery would have been kept. Yeah. If 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 the standard was majority rules, you know, which is a pretty yeah. poor standard. So I, I, I think I hear someone maybe objecting, okay, yeah, I, I think that's that's probably correct and it's unfortunate, but it's still maybe the best we can do, right? So um, you know. Uh, maybe we need just a little bit of tyranny to have a halfway just and peaceful society, and maybe that's just the price we pay. Um, what, what would you say to that? So I think I have a pretty nuanced view on this. I would say maybe they're right. Um, I can't know for sure exactly. Maybe we do need a little bit of authoritarianism to stop ourselves from going into complete chaos and mass murder and civil war. Um, but my best guess is we don't. <laughs> that's why I'm an anarchist. Uh, because I think if you look at a lot of historical examples, um, you know, not well, in even the last couple or few hundred years, it's not necessarily that it was complete anarchy, but there are a lot of instances we can look at that had very little to almost no state influence. And I think most people underappreciate how much law and order was created, even when the state wasn't actively doing it. 
Can, can you elaborate on that a little bit? I think there's some examples you give in the book of um, like kind of like w w the wild, wild west, right? So we all know right. that there wasn't much law in the west, and that's why it was this kind of lawless place where somebody could come into town and, and terrorize the people, and and uh, you know then you'd have to <laughs> you know, call on the seven, the magnificent seven, or something to come in and fight off the bad guys. Um, yeah, exactly. That's right. That, so yeah, in popular culture, that is the understanding, and even according to a fair amount of historians, that's uh, that's what happened. But I think um, most historians, because they're not, they don't appreciate the creation of private law and order creation, or they're probably not libertarian or anarchist at all. They just have a different perspective, and so what they're looking at is how much actual government and state enforcement of law there was, and. When they see very little, they're going to assume, well, it was just chaos anyway. And so that'll be what they look for and discover. You know, they'll focus on the actual instances where it was very dangerous and they'll miss everything else. So um, I read a book when I first started thinking about this years ago. I read a book called The Not So Wild Wild West. Um, ugh, wish I could remember the author, but <laughs> you can look it up pretty easy. And um, I found it very interesting at the time. The author basically talked about a ton of different institutions that created order, like wagon trains. You know, wagon trains, when they left, went, traveled uh, west, they, beforehand, they would create contracts among all their members, typically. And it would say what the punishment for any crime would be, because, you know, they needed a lot of order uh, and laws, in a sense, on that track. Because if some, there was some chaos or somebody was acting crazy, it could really jeopardize the mission in people's lives. And so there was just a lot of planning beforehand of everyone agrees that, you know, if you steal from someone on the trip, we're leaving you behind, things like that. I mean, they're just very strict. And so that's like a very strict sense of like laws, but it was completely privately produced. Hmm. So another example in the Wild West would be San Francisco. Um, in uh, it's about the 1840s, uh, over a five-year period, their population grew from like 100 to 20,000 during the gold rush, right? And so the government was way behind and had no chance of to catch up to their huge growth and establish a government or, you know, an advanced governmental system of courts and police and stuff. Um, there was a small government court, but it was just too tiny. It couldn't handle nearly anything. Um, so the, the what happened was the people in San Francisco created private law and order, uh, essentially. They hired private police, as they were called, to patrol the streets. Like, shop owners would come together on a street and hire people to patrol the streets at night to keep, you know, the shops safe and, uh, and bars safe, especially. And then people in, in neighborhoods would do the same thing, hire people to walk around their neighborhood, watch for fires primarily, but also to prevent any theft and such. Um, and then there was also private courts alongside the government court. They they would actually have a pretty elaborate court system. They'd do everything the government court was doing. You know, there was they'd pre present witnesses, make arguments, and everything. Um, but then they would hand out their own judgments, and it would be enforced because the people were just so so much so trusting of those private courts. So you know, today we they still have the private police system in San Francisco, but it's it's been, I think it's been kind of made a part of the government system and still just called private police. So I don't think it's the same thing, but at least for 
probably about a couple decades, it was a very private system in San Francisco. Yeah, well, you know, and 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 obviously, um, <laughs> San Francisco nowadays, with with uh, much more uh, government involvement, uh, is not necessarily known for being a wonderful place to visit, in at least the last few years, unfortunately. Yeah, it's too bad because um, libertarians and anarchists would have loved it for for a little while, anyway. <laughs> Oh, oh, and by the way, the book you mentioned, and I actually have it on my Amazon wish list, but haven't, haven't read it yet, uh, is The Not-So-Wild Wild West, Property Rights on the Frontier by Terry L. Anderson and Peter J. Hill. Um, yeah, Hill yeah. and Anderson. I, that actually did come to my mind, but it didn't sound right. Um, so they, if you just want to read like a summary of that book, uh, they have one. I think it's a, on the Mises Institute website um, called by the same name, I think. And it's a, a fair, a pretty long article of detailing all the different private organizations that created law and order on the frontier. Yeah, and actually, I think that might be where I originally heard about it. Yeah, but I'll add that mm -hmm. just in case to my uh, uh, to my bookmarks. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so it sounds like what you're sort of saying is that it's not necessarily a, a foregone conclusion um, that if we had a more libertarian or anarchist society, it would, it would go that bad direction, that we don't necessarily need to have a system um, where the majority of Hutus can agree to uh, to kill the minority of Tutsis in order to have peace and justice and prosperity. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I don't think we do. Um, but I think I think for in a sense maybe we do right now because so many people in our society think you know anarchism is ridiculous and it's chaos, right? That if suddenly there was anarchism, the first thing to do is build a state, create a government, right? And so, yeah, we achieved anarchism for 10 minutes, but now it's gone again. So I think what I think what you have to do is you have to make slow cultural changes because people have a people have a bias toward what they understand and know and experience. Right. And no one's experienced um, hardcore libertarianism or especially not anarchism. Right. So they're going to think it's absolutely nuts if it ever did come about and they'll go crazy and they'll probably build a terrible government because that's what people want these days they want a terrible government um yeah so well maybe there might be listeners who, who, who imagine something like uh you know a violent uh disorderly system or whatever when they hear anarchy what what, what does the word mean to you um well i would say i would call myself a market anarchist in particular so different schools of anarchism have different interpretations of what anarchism means. Um, but what it means to me is, well, it's the absence of a state. But then it begs the question of what is a state exactly? And a state is, it's an organization that has the ultimate arbitration power um, in its territory. Um, so as an example, even in like if someone were to take to court the question of is the government court a legitimate organization is it a justified organization well the 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 our party that would be deciding whether that's true or false is the court right there's obviously a little conflict of interest there and i think that by itself proves that government courts and other government functions are unjust and also that the way they operate, and when they operate that way, it shows that they are a government. That's, so that's why I would define government. It's or state that it's when it has 
it has superior arbitration authority to every other organization uh, or person. It has it has the it's seen as being legitimate. Okay. Um, so then, part of what you seem to be proposing is something more like a voluntary social contract. Um, uh, is that fair, or 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 would you, you say something a little well, bit different? I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't like putting it that way because I don't. That might imply, you know, I want everyone to just come together, you know, 300 million people to come together and agree, individually sign that this is what we're going to do. That's not what I want at all. I mean, that I'd be okay with that. That would be really <laughs> consensual, but obviously that's never going to happen, and I don't necessarily want it to happen. What I mean by uh, a voluntary or anarchist society is that we treat everyone has the same rights they have when they're in the private uh, market or private sector as they do when they're in the government sector. And the government sector usually means, uh, at its basic level, it means courts and police and national defense, right? So this, I want the same relationship we have with Walmart when we go and buy groceries as we do when we want to provide arbitration in courts or security of our home and our work. I want us to be able to hire someone to protect protect our place of work, our business, right? And that means, and that implies it will be consensual because we went out and actually hired the person we want to do it. So basically I want a, a whole economy or society ran in that matter where we um, acknowledge that people should consent to these type of things. You'd kind of mentioned an exception to that earlier, which would be the criminal who violates the rights of others, right? Um, and um, it seems to me as, as, I, as I'm kind of listening to this, that uh, maybe another way to, to kind of build this, um, at least uh, conceptually, is to start by talking about like natural rights. That, um, you know, humans are, are born with natural rights, uh, some legal philosophers would call them negative rights. We have a right to not be harmed or molested or killed or, you know, violated or whatever. Um, right. But that also means that others have those rights as well. And that if we try to violate those rights that they have, they have a right to defend themselves or ask for, you know, remuneration or, or some kind of compensation for that. And so laws, you know, laws or whatever, that you, whatever you want to call them, that just respect those natural rights and uh, the, the right to compensation are not violations um, that require, you know, voluntary assent, right? It's not like, exactly. oh, you know, well, well I didn't agree that um, if I uh, murdered this person that I wouldn't have to be, have consequences for that. <laughs> you know, like, well, you didn't have to agree to that because you, you that person has a natural right. But, but when it comes to something like, you know, well, I didn't agree um, to go to prison for uh, for you know the rest of my natural life because I had marijuana uh, in my car. Um, that's different because there's no one whose rights are being violated by that action, and that's where consent is important. Is is that yeah, maybe fair so, to say? Right. So I would say there are two different um, aspects of anarchism or libertarianism at play here. Right. So when when I describe what anarchism is, I'm describing how it would function. Right. What you're talking about, you know, are our goals with anarchism. The goals are that those natural rights are protected as best as we can, right? That's and that's a shared goal with many limited government people. That's what they want, and they just think 
you know, a limited government is the best way to achieve that. And I think that's a bit naive. <laughs> but there are, um, it really depends, even in among like the market anarchists or anarcho-capitalist uh, realm of anarchism, there are varying schools of thought. Like there are some theorists, some authors who would say anarchism is when everyone agrees explicitly via contract that these are going to be our rules, right? And I don't think that's necessary. Um, I just think, well, I think it's unrealistic. And I think you can still have, you can build systems privately um, and different rules and institutions that will defend, for the most part, what we think are natural rights. And at least I think they will do so better than any government system that I've studied. Okay, good. Fair enough. Um, okay. Um, I, I don't want to, uh, I want to be careful about how I use your time here. Um, so the, um, I know that you are a Christian. Um, and so, um, what is, what's the relationship of your views on the state and your faith in Christ? How are they related to each other? Yeah, it's actually, it's actually kind of a long answer or complicated question anyway. Um, so, I mean, I kind of been a Christian my whole life. I was raised in a very Catholic family, but <clears throat> I was never, well, Catholicism, Catholicism, especially when I was young, didn't speak to me at all. And the traditions we did, especially, you know, going to the Catholic schools was extremely boring for a child <laughs> or a young adult, right? Um, so I, I never had a good relationship with Christianity or God until well, I was older. I was about 22, 23. It was pretty good. Um, then it basically disappeared and it all seemed kind of silly. And But it past couple years, again, I'm 30 now. Past couple years, I've kind of, I've definitely re-evaluated and really started to appreciate uh, Christianity and I've been developing my closeness with God. And so how much does it influence my, my political views? A lot. Well, less than I hope. Because I was a libertarian. I was hardcore in libertarianism a lot longer than I was hardcore into uh, religion. And so I think a lot of my libertarian views are bias, are biasing me uh, in a certain direction of Christianity. Now, I've, I've noticed that. And so I've been trying to make sure that doesn't happen, at least, you know, in the last couple of years. And so I think... But I still, so I still think there is a lot of compatibility between Christianity uh, and anarchism. If you want an example, um, the for example of a, a Bible story that is compatible or supports, at least somewhat supports anarchism, is um, the story when Jesus is in the desert and Satan, one of his temptations, the explicit, explicitly a temptation is to offer Jesus the earthly kingdoms of the world. And um, Jesus laughs at him and acknowledges that that is a terrible temptation to do, right? Um, so that should indicate to us that there's something wrong with kingdoms. Another way to say that is there's something wrong with states. Um, this at least was a temptation for Jesus, which I think is a pretty big deal. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I, I've got a, um, a book that I wrote called Fight the Powers that talks about that verse and, and a few others as well. There's significant, well, actually really threads through, this, through the Bible that talk about the um, relationship of uh, negative spiritual powers and, and um, state power, uh, political power. 
And um, I'm working on another book that's coming out as well, where uh, I kind of delve into that as well. Um, but one thing that sort of occurred to me is you can um, look to scripture to ground a lot of these things. This idea that the state is connected to is basically, you know, in the temptation of where, where Satan tempts Jesus, he says that he has power over the governments of the world and he gives them to whomever he pleases, uh, right. which is which is even more of an aggressive statement. It means that the state is inherently something that is anti-Christian, right? Um, yeah. And so, so you would think, you know, based on that and some of these other passages, um, that you could make a very compelling case for a strong, thoroughgoing um, uh, activist anarchism. And what kind of su su surprises me when I, when I read the, the, the New Testament especially is that the uh, approach that seems to kind of be suggested, especially by Paul, is, you know, yeah, even though the state is kind of illegitimate, you should just have this sort of attitude of long-suffering toward it. Um, and that it's tough to say exactly how far that extends. I do know that um, even if we were to create this better state that was more anarchistic, it's still not the kingdom of God. So it's right. deficient and, you know, it's hugely deficient in that sense. Um, so no, that's a great point. Yeah. So I, I think we can't be thinking in terms of, well, if we if we do our political activism can somehow fix the whole thing and everything will be good. Um, but we can, I think, think in terms of how can we improve. But I guess I, I sort of feel um, stuck in between these sort of two places, this one place of sort of Paul's attitude of almost like, well, the state's always going to be around. You're just going to have to figure out how to how to <laughs> how to live alongside it, knowing that it's not legitimate um, versus this kind of more anarchistic. Well, this is this would be better. We should do this. Um, we should be more libertarian. Um, yeah. And I wonder if, if you have any thoughts about how to navigate those two things. Yeah, well, on the, I think your later point, yeah, a lot of people, Ruin, when they hear you're an anarchist, will respond, or you're just being a utopian. You're being naive. Um, and that relates to, you know, it's still an earthly kingdom. Uh, it's not, it's not heaven. It's not God's kingdom. We're not aiming for that on earth. We're just aiming for a better system that we think will better protect people and um and their natural rights right um i was wondering did you cover the unto caesar uh passage or story in your book yeah so the, the render unto caesar i didn't in the first book because it was more about um it was less about sort of practical well there's a little bit of practical stuff but it's more about kind of tracing this theme through the bible of uh demonic and political power conjoined uh the new book that i've got coming out is actually called what belongs to caesar and there is an essay on uh, on that um, that passage. Yeah, I I found I found that to be a fascinating passage uh, because the the so common so popular interpretation is that it just means oh well Caesar has a right to take your money. I mean then mm -hmm. you know you're supposed to give your money to Caesar. You're supposed to pay taxes. That's what so Jesus said, right? Which I think is just a really shallow interpretation. There's a lot more subtleties in that story. You know, mm. Jesus. Um, I think a more reasonable interpretation is Jesus was making fun of, in a sense, the Pharisees and say, pointing out that, well, you have Caesar's coins, so give it to him. He may have just been pointing out that, uh, why are you using Caesar's coins? We have our local Jewish currency. You know, we have, um, you don't need to be involved with Caesar's government policies and schemes. You know, what are you doing doing that? You're, you're a political leader. I mean, yeah, well, you're, you're, you're a religious leader. Yeah. You should be a religious leader, but instead you're a political leader. 
Yeah, well, the, the, there, there's other uh, other things going on in that passage, too. Uh, one of them is, um, you know, when Jesus ends by saying, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, give back to Caesar what right. belongs to Caesar, give back to God what belongs to God. And it, it's, it's amazing to me is how um, statists, people who have a strong view of, uh, in, support, in support of the state, uh, don't ever seem to think to ask the question, well, what does belong to Caesar and what does belong to God? And if you go back to some of the early commentators uh, in the early church, they'll say, well, the coin's what belongs to Caesar. Duh, it's his coin. He minted it. Uh, what belongs to God? Well, the, the very least men do. The image of God belongs to uh, God, right? And so that means Caesar can't just sort of say, I'm going to dispose of life however I see fit because I'm Caesar. Um, and so, that, uh, but I, I think you could go even further than that. And you could say, what belongs to God? Well, everything belongs to God. Uh, of course, God, God also allows us to have our own private property and as long as he lets us live and doesn't take it from us. Um, and so, yeah, give the coin back to Caesar. That belongs to Caesar. Um, but that doesn't mean so. But, but then I, I think that, that raises a, an interesting thought experiment, which is well, what about Bitcoin? Bitcoin doesn't belong to the government. So do you have to tax on Bitcoin? Well, not not if you're following that passage. That doesn't say that you have to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you just said that I just yesterday I just shared a. Um, uh, I think it was a comment from Spike Cullen on Facebook, <laughs> making that exact argument um, that Jesus would have been a would have had crypto because <laughs> it has nothing to do with, uh, you know, it wasn't created by governments. And it's more of a, a voluntary and kind of private, um, you know, currency. Right. So it's, yeah. it's more consensual in that sense. And whoever wants to use it uh, can just use it. Whereas fiat money, government's money is, you know, there are laws requiring you that you have to pay your taxes in dollars, right? Things like that. And so what that does is it artificially creates or makes the dollar the primary currency that we use, you know, even when we might prefer oh, to use other currencies. Yeah, well, and I think ultimately what the um, kind of the non-Anabaptist or sort of pro-statist uh, view of this passage really does is say, well, what belongs to God is the, is your spiritual realm. You know, of course, you know, you can be a soldier, you can drop, you know, nukes on any city you want. Um, that's fine because that that's, you're doing that for Caesar. That's your body. But your your soul, your spirit, that belongs to God. And so basically they sort of relegate God to this realm that uh, it's like basically like your disembodied spirit. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with what you do or how you live. Um, it's just, you know, how you feel inside. Uh, and then everything else belongs to Caesar, which is not, I, I don't think, what, what Jesus is trying to say. Yeah, because it especially, you think about, I think, like the first 200 years that of Christianity, you know, Christians, from what I understand, they didn't serve in the army. They um, didn't hold political office. They never tried to achieve anything like that. And they, and then for some time, they were prosecuted for doing Christian acts like praying to God. And but they still did it anyway because they they knew that was more important and they knew that the earthly kingdom was something separate entirely. Yeah, I, actually, it was roughly the first 300 years. And um, the um, there are some exceptions. There's evidence that some Christians served in the military, par par probably partly because they were converted while they were in the army. Um, mm -hmm. And but you do have um, pretty much unanimous support from the church fathers on that not being acceptable. I think. Mm -hmm. um, is it Tertullian? Tertullian, early in his career, says something about uh, Christians serving in the military. He's writing in the uh, mid-100s. Mid um, and he he says something. He's not. He's kind of maybe approving of it. It's kind of neutral. 
Uh, but then later on, um, he he basically, I think they, he comes full stop against Christians in the military. And uh, mm-hmm. But I think he's really the only exception, exception in those first 300 years of Christians uh, saying anything positive about serving in the military, and then he changed his mind. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It, it might, the more subtle point might be that Christians shouldn't engage in violence if they don't need to, like just being <laughs> in the military in general. But I think... I think Christianity and like Jesus would prefer if you were going to fight, you did it in a more consensual organization than the state, as in you weren't paid through taxed money. Um, you were def- just defending your neighborhood and your homes and maybe you're, you know, in the Jewish community, maybe defending Jewish people from outside invasions. And, you know, government militaries, that's just usually not what they do. Like the U.S. government today, most of what it does is interfere in other countries. Like defending us is just like a byproduct. And sometimes interfering in other countries makes our defense more vulnerable. Yeah, you can make that argument. I I would say for me that the connection between my uh, my political views and my religious views is that I think Jesus is um, uh, pretty full stop nonviolent. Now, I would make I would qualify that to some extent by saying, you know, um, uh, um, you know, perhaps using minimal force uh, to sort of slow somebody down who's trying to hurt somebody else or stop them or or restrain them. I don't necessarily think that's bad, but but I but I I think you know it's it's very reasonable to ask, you know, am I loving my neighbor if I blow their brains out? Um, I think (laughs) it's hard to come up with an example where that works. Um, right. And so, so what we usually do is we say, well, we hate this one, but we do it to love somebody else or, or do it to love right. ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. But I think for me, that that's part of why um, I can't get behind, like, in, like you talked about, like an anarchistic utopianism is because I think uh, this side of the second coming of Jesus, violence is still going to be something that happens. And so sure. even if we don't have a state, you're still going to have consensual police forces. You're still going to have some violence, some, uh, you know, some perhaps some some battles even. Um, and so I think you still have, as a, a Christian, you still have to ask yourself, where do I fit into that? Um, and so, so whether it's a state or not, there's still going to be things that Christians are going to have to, I think, pull back from in society. Right, right. I think that's exactly right. And so my point was more so that, you know, if you were to join like a private security force, rather than being in uh, um, the military that is invading other countries, um, mm. I think that would just, that would move you more in the direction, sure. at least, of, of what is being more Christian, right? And maybe, and maybe when you're in that private security force, maybe you're trying to make it less violent in their actions. You know, maybe instead of, obviously, instead of shooting like a a, a robber, maybe we do everything we can to just pin him down physically, or mm-hmm. even a ro- not a robber. You could probably just let him go, even. But like a, someone trying to murder someone, right? Yeah. Maybe we don't shoot him in the head is our first reaction. Maybe we do the what's more practical for not letting anyone get hurt, you know what I mean, depending on the situation. Sure, well, yeah, and, and private security is generally going to be looking for those opportunities to not go to the extreme um, because it, it's, it's a big headache, it's 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 a PR nightmare. Right. So unless you're a private security uh, uh, corporation or firm that works for the military, <laughs> you, know, you, you rarely hear about private security, uh, you know, shooting right. people like you do police, right? Um, and, and so that's, that's, yeah. so that's part. <laughs> Go ahead. I was going to say it, it fits into a harm reduction strategy, right? Yeah. It's not the kingdom of God, but it's harm reduction. Yeah. And so that's part of the reason why just 
why anarchism and just private alternatives to these services are better, right? People, they're they have to issue, they have to deal with the the clap back of their uh, customers, the response, the outrage if they kneel on someone in the middle of the street and leave them on their neck and they die. You know, which I mean, the government police still had some backlash, but a lot of the times they don't. Yeah. Well, and in most cases, the, the officers protected. That was one instance where because the public outcry was so aggressive and so strong, right. they had to do something about it. Um, right. But the, yeah. I think the difference between the private and the government is both. You can be outraged at both. Right. But at least for the private company, you can say, OK, I'm not going to be your customer anymore because you violently you treat people too violently. The government, you can't do that. You still got to pay your taxes. They're still going to have a police force, even if you hate the way they handle uh, security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and a private security officer who does something like that is going to be fired at least, right? <laughs> right? And, 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 and yeah, and he's not going to be insured either. So if, if uh, you know somebody who has done something like that is not going to be able to get private insurance, they're not going to be able to afford it, right? Whereas um, the way it works right now with the state is a police officer can do all these horrible things. They would be insurable in the open, uninsurable in the open market. Um, but because the, basically we, the taxpayers, are going to pay for all the lawsuits and things that they do, <laughs> that they bring up. Um, right, right. And that's, they, why, and that's why I think uh, enacting laws that require police officers to have insurance like that would yeah. be a step in the right direction because it would be making it more like a private security force, at least a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, we've been talking about 45 minutes now. Um, can you just maybe wrap up by just telling folks uh, how to get a hold of the book? Yeah, it's just on Amazon, uh, an ebook and paper book uh, or paperback. Um, it's just the myth of the social contract on Amazon. Pretty easy to find. There is another Andrew Kern author, so probably don't search by just my name. He writes about uh, education, I think. Um, you could also, I have a website where Pretty much every article I've ever written and blog is on there, uh, principledlibertarian.com. Uh, but I, I don't publish much on there anymore, but a lot of my, all my old writing is pretty much. Now I just, um, right now anyway, I, I have a public Facebook page and it's at Andrew Kern author. And uh, everything I've been writing goes on there. Um, I have blog posts and then shorter stuff too. Thank you so much. I'm going to make sure I link to uh, to those sites for folks who are interested, and I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. It's good to talk to you. You too.